Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode, I or one of my colleagues will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist or violin maker. My guest today is Sir Michael Hill. His business, Michael Hill Jeweller, which he only started at the age of 40, has become phenomenally successful and now has 300 stores in New Zealand, Australia and Canada. Sir Michael left school at the age of 16 with ambitions to become a concert violinist, but life and business swiftly took him in a different direction. Nevertheless, the violin still remains very close to his heart. We are speaking to each other today while I am in virus lockdown in England and Michael similarly in the South Island of New Zealand. So Michael, people think of Michael Hill, they think Michael Hill jeweler, they don't think Michael Hill violinist. So could you, could you tell us your story about your, your, your relationship with the violin and how that started and how in, in Europe actually when people think Michael Hill, they do think Michael Hill violin because of your competition and the same in America. But of course, in Australia and New Zealand, you're, you're, you're very famous for the, the jewellery business. But how did that whole journey start with the violin? Well, this is a, it's a big question you've asked, but I'll, I'll try and ask it, answer it reasonably simple. But basically, I always had a love for music because my dad was a, a classical uh, pianist, really, but he never really made a living of it. He had to make a living by supporting himself with other things. But he had a, a very sensitive touch, and he was um, a joy to listen to. So he wanted me to play the piano, of course, which I, I endeavoured to learn, but I was never, I never found it easy for some reason. I, it was just something about it, it never really, it never really gelled with me. And then uh, when I was in, uh, when I was 11 years old at, at school, there was a new music teacher there, uh, Peter Green, um, who um, um, was a, was a lovely violinist and he brought music to that school considerably and you've got to remember I was brought up in the north of New Zealand in a little place where had a population of about 15,000 it was mainly dairy farms um, farming was the way that so as farmers mainly farmers so you know the violin was sort of quite a sort of um, unusual really um, but anyhow so anyway I, I listened to him and um, I, I really gravitated towards it so my parents bought me a violin and um, to their horror, I gave up the piano and started practicing. And I really enjoyed it and I do it quite easily. So, so that went on for some time. And then I had a, a sort of an unusual, a, a, unusual school, a time at school because um, I, I was a sort of a, a small boy. I wasn't big like the farming boys. And um, I didn't like, I wasn't really a rugby player or a ball sport of that sort. So therefore I was probably quite a misfit at school. And because of that, I was bullied quite severely. And um, I, it really did quite affect me for a long while. And um, my, my academic life was also completely um, ruined because of that, because I couldn't think, because I was always scared of being bullied when the class finished. You know, so, <clears throat> Uh, there was a Danish music teacher, Orgen Nielsen, who'd come from the Danish Symphony Orchestra, and he 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 set up um, in in Wangarei, in northern New Zealand, which was a sort of a 
a place where a lot of people gravitated to, you know, if they wanted to get away from uh, city life. And he, he heard me play it and said he could make a classical violinist out of it. And, of course, that to me was just an amazing thought. So I, I left school uh, with that pursuit in mind. And he taught me for a couple of years and I did eight hours a day and I got pretty good, <clears throat> but not good enough um, for my parents. Uh, and uh, they, they, they thought really that I was wasting my time. And um, my uncle, who owned a jewellery shop, which my parents worked in, um, came and saw me and um, he, he said that, uh, this was an intolerable situation that your parents are having to support you. They can't afford to do it. You're wasting your time. You're wasting our time. You're wasting everybody's time. It's pathetic. You've got to get yourself a real job. You can't play around, poncing around, playing this violin thing you're playing. It's just not going to work. So basically, that's, um, he said, I'm going to make a watchmaker out of you. And that's basically the next week, literally, um, I was banished from violin playing, sort of, and um, was um, joined the family business um, um, doing watch repairs in, in the back room with eight other people who were doing watch repairs at the same time. How do you look back on that um, time and that, I, 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 it must have been quite, traumatic for you? I mean, if you were doing eight hours practice a day, you were very committed yeah. to the violin. I was very determined at that stage. Um, well, I really had no choice. Um, and um, uh, you, But I, I didn't last very long in the watchmaking department because I was breaking too many watches. You see, what happened, they started <laughs> you as an apprentice. They started you on uncollected repairs. So I would be... Um, on big bed alarm clocks and baby bed alarm clocks, and then I gravitated towards men's watches, and then women's watches. It was in those in that in the area in the nineteen fifties when watches were really small. You know, women's watches were really, really, really tiny, and I could just see my world getting smaller and smaller. So <laughs> I, I, it really didn't last. So my my um, so uh, the head watchmaker spoke to my uncle and said, "This this is this is not going to work." He's ruining too many watches. We can't have him in here. He's not, he's not, it just doesn't suit it. So they decided me to put me in the front shop as a sales assistant, which I couldn't think of anything worth. But my dad was there and my dad taught me. My dad used to be an Electrolux salesman. He sold vacuum cleaners during the Depression. And he married my mum, whose um, brother owned a jewellery shop. So that's how I was in that, in that position. So I, I, I still played the violin though, and I gave lessons, and um, I really enjoyed it. And Olga Nielsen still gave me lessons, and uh, and you know I played in you know local music groups, and uh, um, so my my life wasn't too bad really. Um, but you've got to remember, you see, that I had a lot of knockbacks, or well, in my mind, I had a lot of knockbacks. I was bullied at school, so therefore my marks were atrocious at school. So I was a really a bad performer at school, really, really low. And then I left there and I was a, I was a watchmaker and that didn't work out also as another thing. So now I'm with my dad in the front shop selling jewellery, which um, and very timid and thinking, you know, well, this is what I have to do. But do you know I had such a long apprenticeship? I was there for 23 years with my dad selling behind that counter. 
Yeah. Wow. I wow. never really thought that I would amount to anything much more than that. Um, but Christine, my wife, came in on the immigration scheme from, um, from uh, Yorkshire to teach art at the Wangari Girls High School. Met her in the October, um, and um, instantly I thought, my goodness me, I'd like to take this girl out, which I did. And um, I proposed to her on Christmas Eve, and we married on the 3rd of March. And that's um, 50, goodness me, that's 50, 55 years ago, for goodness sake. So, so that, that's that really, <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing. Michael, I, I remember you tell it, or maybe I read it in, in, in your book, um, that the item that you rescued from you, the house that you were building, you came back one day and it was, uh, you could see the flames in the sky and um, you just had time to run in and gather one item. And that was, I believe, the violin. Um, so, it, it, uh, and that you'd already been in the jewelry business for t some time then. Well, I've been, in the, I've been in the business basically for 23 years and I really, really realised in my heart of hearts and a lot of people have this hidden feeling in them, I might add, which we can touch on later, but I always knew that there was probably something I should be not doing. I should not be working here, but I had fear because I felt comfortable. It's a bit like the frog in boiling water. You know, you stay in the water from cold until there's any boiling and you know, the frog dies but it wasn't quite as bad as that. But what actually happened is that um, between Christine, who was teaching art, and myself, we had two children. We, then we, had, we had sufficient money to buy some units, and I sold those, and, we had, and then we bought a piece of land. And we, we built this beautiful home, and, and which was a, a, a huge home, actually, well above our, 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 our capabilities of paying for it. But anyhow, we did it, and we actually, over two and a half years, we completed it. But one night we went to the pictures and um, uh, there was a call to say the house was on fire. And that was the night I was standing above the house watching it. It was three stories, all in cedar, and I could just see all the flames were licking into the sky. And that was the night that changed my life because I took a visiting card out of my pocket as I watched it and I wrote down, I'm going to own my uncle's business if he doesn't sell, I'm going to get out and start by myself. And that was a catalyst for that. And then I thought, my goodness, I could get my Giovanni de Lenz violin, which is upstairs. I rushed in and I, I grabbed it. The flames were, were, were all around me. It was a foolish thing to do, but I got the violin out. And the next morning I opened the violin up. Of course, it was all in pieces because all the glue had come apart. But, mm -hmm. but, but, but I had it. And um, and and so it, it was. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. So it shows that the violin obviously pulled at your heartstrings to a certain extent. If you're going to risk your life to recover it, and I've always had and, a, deep, uh, a deep love for the violin. Yes, mm, yeah. So and so the, yeah yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, from then on, of course, this is the silly part about it. So there's a boy that's timid, a boy that dare not visualize or dare not think of anything. But suddenly I started visualizing what could I, you know, that it once once I'd made my decision about my uncle, who incidentally didn't sell to me, so he left me no option but the startup in opposition, which is the best thing I could ever do. Um, but from that moment on, I started visualizing 
and I visualized all sorts of things in the business world, what I should do, how many shops I should have, what I could do. And, and it was, it was a, an orchestrated plan um, built by goal setting with a long-term vision of 30 years. And that really, even though I'd read all the books about how to do this, the most difficult thing about goal setting is making the first move. To actually, actually say you're going to do it, it's one thing, but you've got to write it down and then you've got to commit yourself to do it. And a lot of people get to that stage and never do it. The house fire, of course, made me do it in a flash. Before that, I was dithering around. But after that, I didn't. So, so there was the new life. And then, of course, I wanted to do more for music. And there was the lady who was the concertmaster of the Auckland um, Philomantic Orchestra, um, Miranda Adams. And she came down and we had a concert in a wine cave down here in Queenstown. But we got walking and talking and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a competition? And um, so we, we conjured up this idea between the two of us that we have a, had a competition that we could, could become a, an international competition, which is what we called the Michael Hill International Violin Competition. And, of course, I needed the support from the, from the Auckland Philharmonia, and I, I went there. I was quite nervous. And there was, um, there was the um, Anne Rodder was there managing the orchestra, and her and, and, and another guy, Lloyd, um, interviewed me and they came back and they said, we'd like to be part of that. And that, that's, uh, that's 18 years ago now that we, we did that. And uh, so we started this little humble competition, which has actually been amazing because I've made so many friends with those violinists. It's just truly amazing. I mean, I just I've had a couple of texts today. Some of them were always in touch. They're lovely people. You know, musical people are wonderful people. I think they're the most lovely people. I think people in arts are the softest, the most gentle, and the most beautiful mm. people who are more akin to nature than to people that are, you know, just just in things for the money. And and Michael, when when you you know to be bold and to make that move and to not have the fear of of course um, when it comes to playing the violin you actually do have to have the talent and and so you if one makes that commitment you really want to know that um one's got the ability to see it through i guess i mean when i look at our own clients and the successful players that we have it's it's actually more than talent as well because you need an extraordinary resilience to be traveling around the world and if you're a soloist you're traveling around the world on your own a lot of the time or maybe with your pianist if you're doing a recital tour. And it does take this extraordinary resilience. It, it's, it's not just about how well you play the violin, is it? It's, um, it, it, it? There's a lot more to it than just that. There's an awful lot to it, and it's, it's very complex. And uh, uh, today, I mean, in, in the olden days, uh, as you know, I mean, even Yesha Hyper State, you know, you could get away with... Um, with uh, playing, um, and you didn't need really any other graces, really. But today, that has completely changed, and um, it's it's much more complex, and of course, much more competitive. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful thing to pursue. It's a dreadfully difficult thing to pursue. Um, but if one really does have the talent and thinks one's got it, then I, I, I think it's something that. Um, one could get a great thrill out of. One of the several things I've noticed there with young violinists is uh, 
the first thing is a lot of them could do with some form of meditation. I do transcendental meditation. And uh, all that means is in the morning when you, when you get up, uh, sit up in bed, and for 20 minutes, you just repeat a mantra that's been given to you uh, according to your body type. There's three body types. And there's the, the fast one and never sits down. There's the in-between and then there's the, the heavier set, sort of more solid people. So you get a, they give you a mantra anyhow and that you just repeat that to yourself. You, you must not be judgmental. You can't say you've tried meditation. It didn't work for me because it won't work if you say that. But you've just got to be um, non-judgmental and just do it. And even if you think it doesn't work, it actually does work. And at times you find yourself going into a into a state of pure consciousness where it's absolutely still. And that's where you've got all your all your resources and all the your your everything that makes you, because every one of us has got an enormous potential, but a lot of the time that's locked and it's never um we never have the key to unlock that. And I think if you can do that, you actually can then pull on all the resources of not just yourself, but your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and everyone that's formed you right back to probably a million people that makes the DNA of what you are. And you can pull on those resources. And I think this could be an enormous help to a lot of people is to be able to unleash themselves so that they can they can um, use that power because strangely enough your best thinking and your most creative is when there's no thought at all it's the reverse of what you think <laughs> and and it's certainly one one aspect of the whole lockdown that we're living through at the moment is that we have stopped and the frantic frenetic lives that we lead have, have actually suddenly come to this shuddering halt and um, to a certain extent, it does feel like a bit of a meditation at the moment. You, you did right. And I think in a way, in a strange sort of way, that's going to be good for a lot of us, really, that we, we have to um, be more noticeable of the beautiful, natural nature that is around us and also take more care of your loved ones and your partner and your family and your relatives and everyone that's... You're, you're fond of, or even if you're not, everyone to become yeah, a more rounded and a, and a more balanced person that can share these things. And I think all that giving back um, 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 rewards you and enriches you and your, your thoughts. And I think the violin, you know, and or the cello or the viola, particularly yeah. stringed instruments, they they do provide a, a they, they do feed the soul, the body, the intellect. In many ways, it feels to me like it's 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 pretty unique in as much as you you producing a voice with your hands. Um, of course, you you use your all your faculties. You, use, you know you you listening, and and then on top of that, you are producing something with an emotional charge to it. And I, I think it's quite quite unique from that point of view combining a kind of yo physical yoga with mental yoga and i i there's nothing quite like the string string playing for for that i i think it's extraordinary and i i love and um which we all have been to concerts when you know an artist will completely at some stage will have you in their spell and time absolutely stands still you have no idea 
whether you be listening for five minutes or 20 or half an hour or something, when you're suddenly transfixed completely under that person's spell. And I, I, I think this is something that um, concert artists also thrive on, is uh, that they, you can feel it, you can sense it, they can sense it, and it actually it draws your playing to be even even better than it was. Um, yeah. And, and you've had a phenomenally successful career in, in, in your business, and um, obviously you, you love that. But do you ever have that feeling when you see one of these great young players, winners of your competition, do you have that feeling, oh, gosh, I just wish I'd gone down that road and succeeded down the that other road? Do, do you ever have that well, pulling I, at the heartstring. Well, I do and I don't. I I, I, I probably realised that, that, you see, I started playing the violin at 11, which was probably dreadfully late. I, I probably do feel that, but then I also am in awe at what they're doing and the, the, the you know, the, the genius it takes to become so good um, that, yeah, in a way, I think I'm very fortunate that probably I could have still the joy of I'm playing the viola. I'm playing a viola, would you believe, made by Richard Penting in Auckland, New Zealand. It's beautiful. It's actually, and it sounds so beautiful. I'm doing the Bach cello suite, so I'm quite loving it, really. Uh, plus mm. playing my Guadagnini, which, uh, my goodness me, um, the more I play it, the more it, 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 it sings back at me. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah, I've forgotten the question now. I've got carried away with my, my instruments. <laughs> I think you can be forgiven for getting carried away with your Guadagnini, your Guadagnini violin. And my question was really whether you ever wished that you had gone down the violin route rather than the jewellery route. And how, you know, how does one ever make such a difficult decision? I, I think really this gets down to the goal setting. And I think everybody probably should get a bit of A4 paper, simple as this might seem. Write down what you want to be, what you want to stand for, where you want to be, and what do you want to be known for in 30 years' time. And I think if you look at the long-term thing, I think you can actually work out, because there's going to be a lot of crossroads, as you say, uh, and you never know where these crossroads are going to take you. So we, we do need to prepare um, um, for crossroads and going down a slightly different, well, even a greatly different path. So I think if we write down what we want to do, it doesn't need to be a long, it can be as many words as you like to write. It might only be five words. It might be a complete essay. It depends how you look at it. Anyhow, write it down. If you put that on paper, fold the piece of paper, put it in a stout envelope and put it in the safe or under the bed or wherever it's safe or in the top drawer, wherever it is. And then review that in a year's time. Have a review of it. And every year from there on, just get that piece of paper and, and write down. Now, it might, it might change completely. But what I've found is that very few people in the world actually do goal set long term. And those who do usually have a remarkable success because they know exactly where they're going. They're driven to where they're going. And I think you owe it to yourself. I think you owe it to your relatives. You owe it to everybody that in 30 years' time, you're going to make do something which is so incredible, they're all going to be amazingly impressed with you. And you're going to do something for your family tree, for your name, for your future. And I thoroughly recommend writing something simply down, like I said, and review it each year. Um, the hardest thing to do is to know what you want to, but if you put something down, at least you're on the bus and you're starting to move forward. Without that, 
the direction is always slightly insecure. We are too influenced by influences and not on the, on the goals that we set that takes you to where you want to do. I believe in the 80-20 rule that most of us do far too much. We should only concentrate on the 20% that takes us to where we wish to go to and eliminate the rest. Because if you try and be everything to everybody, you really can't do it. And then you fool yourself and you try to please everybody, you can't. Um, so... That's a fantastic, fantastic thought for, I think, everybody to hold on to. Um, one final um, discussion sure. before we leave it is, um, what are your thoughts on this extraordinary time that we're living through at the moment with the lockdown that we're living through? And, and what do you think the consequences of that are going to be? Well, to be honest, I don't think anybody really knows because we're sort of going into this and I don't think people realise the seriousness. A lot of people still are not um, aware of the enormous repercussions that are going to happen. There's going to be an enormous unemployment. There's going to be all sorts of things. But there's also will be lots of opportunity. So everybody, in particular if you're young, you need to be thinking of ideas that are new ideas, fresh ideas. I mean, I know I'm in retail. And, you know, our, we have 300 shops, which we have still got, and we've got about 2,500 people that are uh, sort of waiting for something to happen, and we're sort of, you know, holding them there, but you, you never know where it's going to happen. But when we open up again in retail, um, it will never be the same again, in my opinion. And I think that retail stores will be, you know, we had an idea, I had an idea of a thousand stores, but I think actually probably I'm going to be looking for more like likely 50 to a, to a hundred stores, but a far bigger presence on the, on, on the website. And it's going to be a complete change uh, for us. And I think it's going to be the same. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that music will always have an enormous place um, in society. Um and which is, is is extraordinarily important, really. Um, and what we need to do, though, is we we those who are playing need to make themselves different. They need to be thinking differently. They need to. A lot of young players try to play the same as each other. I notice. Even my competition, they're all, they're all formulating to play exactly sort of one style, more or less, rather than um, being completely unique. I also think that sometimes conservatism in the way you dress, the way you look, um, I've always encouraged my winners to, or not even the winners, all of them, to see if you can find a point of difference, something that makes you stand out, something that people say, oh, that was the guy or that was the girl who had the XYZ or wore the big brooch or had the red hair. I don't know what it is. But, you know, don't be frightened to be different. And I think if you have a point of difference and you're bold and you've got a personality, stage personality, I'm sure, is going to win so many hearts. Um, the other thing is a lot of young instrument players are not fit enough. They're not exercising their, their body correctly uh, with yoga and with weight-bearing exercises. They're very frail. 
and that frailness eventually will cause problems. So we do need to strengthen up the skeleton um, and then stretching with yoga or, or stretching um, because I, I think um, if, you're, if you've, you've got a healthy body, it'll also uh, give you a healthy mind and um, that, that, that helps an awful lot. I probably talk far too much, but I just want to say something about um, about you and bears. And um, uh, I mean, I've dealt a bit in violins and to be quite frank, you know, I've had a very um, mixed feeling with some of the um, some of the purchases, but I've always known and I've always been treated with the most enormous respect from Bears and Simon Morris um, uh, that um, I, I could not speak more highly of you, Simon, and what you do and your principles are truly extraordinary. And um, that is an amazing attribute and it's a privilege to know you and thank you for the interview. Thank you so much to Sir Michael Hill. At 81 years old, his energy and vision is always an inspiration and certainly makes me feel more relaxed about having hit the benchmark of 60 myself. <laughs> In my next episode, I speak with Alan Gilbert, formerly music director of the New York Philharmonic and recently appointed chief conductor of the NDR Elbe Philharmonie. Alan comes from a family of violin players and he still plays himself. So thank you very much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Jane Beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com. <laughs>